Oh, yeah. Let's get this party started up in here. Whoop, whoop. Hey, this is Mark. You're listening to this show probably on your mobile device, whether it's iOS or Android or even Windows Mobile. <laughs> Who has one of those? Uh, but anyway, you're probably listening, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or some other wonderful mobile app that brings this amazingly awesome show to your ear holes. Yeah. But did you also know that you can find this show, among several others in this category, at the Tangent Bound Network? That's right. Go visit TangentBoundNetwork.com. Check it out where you can always get the latest episode of this and other shows quite like it. Although, admittedly, there is no show quite like this one. Victor Dandridge, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm good, Dirk Manning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Hey, did you hear that uh, Adrian has issues? Yo, he's got a lot of issues. That is what I've heard. I've heard that his issues are amazing as they are numerous. Yes, numerous. Far-reaching. Far-reaching. He has a plethora of issues. Oh, snap. A multitude. A multitude. A spectrum of issues. A myriad of issues? You're reaching deep. But, you know, listen, (laughs) we can talk about Adrian's issues all day. True. But the fact of the matter is Adrian has issues. Right. And now... Everyone out there, thanks to you, Victor Dandridge. To me? What about to you, Dirk Manning? Now everyone else can experience Adrian's issues. Isn't that great? That's, it's, beautiful. it's beautiful. So, you know, my, why don't we quit talking and then people can experience Adrian and his issues because I've heard that Adrian has, has issues. He does have issues. So, Dirk Manning, you're going to get off this? I think I will, Victor Dandridge. Let's allow people to get to Adrian. Let's talk to Adrian then. Hello and welcome to Adrian Has Issues. I'm Adrian. Today is going to be a lot of fun. Today's guest I spoke to at great length at the Creator AfterCon back in October 2015, which was, I believe, what was that, the Friday to your Comic-Con? It was a Friday night? I think it was Friday night, yeah. Which, by the way, shout out to J. Jacob Barker for throwing that whole thing together and met a lot of great people. But yeah, we did a little bar hopping and chatting about pretty much everything under the sun with a couple of other great people. But he himself is a comic book writer and the uh, creator of the company Crowd Wrangler Comics, and we're going to talk about a bunch of his projects and pretty much whatever the heck we also feel like getting into, but please welcome Jeff Ryder. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. No, thank you. Like, I trust me, I'm that person who I feel like I should thank my guests more than they should thank me, because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially those, you know, who have families, have other things going on, to take an hour out of your day to sit and chat with me on this show, trust me, I'm more, th- I think I may be more thankful than anyone else, because uh, it, is, it is very awesome. Fun to do. Right? But, you know, much hey. like you, you know, as far as, well, you being a comic book creator and a writer, you have to love what you do, because otherwise... Why is, uh, why bother, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of hard work, but it's, it's work you want to be doing the whole time you're doing it for sure. It's absolutely something that is a passion for me and, and a passion for everybody you deal with. It's, it's such a collaborative thing that you really get excited about making comics with people. Yeah. And that's something that I definitely got that vibe when we did the after con because, you know, and I had done one before that. Were you a special edition NYC by any chance? 
I was. I was at both of those last year. Oh, really? How did I miss you on Special Edition? I don't know. That was a that was an interesting evening as well. The very first creator connection after party. That's right. Because I don't know if you were there. I might have left early because I don't know if we stayed for the entire thing. Because I know we had to like rush back at some point. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, I didn't get to chat with as many people, and I felt really bad about that because after that day. I was just so exhausted. Once I found a place to sit, I didn't do nearly as, as much floor walking as possible. So there's a very good chance you were probably like right next to me and I didn't speak to you. It may have happened. There were a lot of people at that first party and it was an interesting experience because it was the first time anybody had ever done anything like that. And I think we were all sort of feeling our way through it a little bit. Really? That was the first one? Yeah. As far as I know, Jacob and Sean, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob, Stan Chow. And um, Steve Petrovelli are the the sort of three creators of the Creator After Connections Network. And they put together that very first one that year at Special Edition last year, last summer. Okay, great. Yeah. And the second one, though, since I felt so bad, I'm like, okay, the second one, I'm going to do this completely different. And it met so many great people. And the event itself was a total blast. But then afterwards, a couple of us, because I know it was you. I believe Steve Petrovelli was there for a bit of it, Sean Dillon, um, who actually did the art on your book, Gravity Matters, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. That's kind of where that got started that night, actually. Really? And Yeah. <laughs> nice. You making connections. Yeah, it was, it was a fun story, actually. I had written the script for Gravity Matters, which is a little sci-fi comic short. It's a little 12-page story for a completely different artist way back in the day that I'd met at a different convention. He had pitched me an idea about doing a like an iPad-based comic series, and he wanted to do these kind of widescreen, funky things. And so I wrote him a script like in this sort of weird format that he had come up with. And then the project didn't work out and he ended up getting some other big time work doing something else. So I just had this fun story that I'd been sitting on for a while. And we were at that party that night and I met Sean through Steve Petrovelli. I met Sean and Steve do a book called Sweetie together, which is really super fun. And I had been reading it and I, I just said, Sean, you know, I know you guys have this thing, but your style would be sort of compatible with this story that I have. It's kind of a fun sci-fi thing about two sisters who are young girls who get stuck in this sort of bad situation and have to figure out a way out of it. And I kind of showed him the script that I had with me and, and he read through it and he said, yeah, this would be great. And I, I went back home to San Francisco and he lives in New Jersey, but we cranked it out in no time at all. And we put it out online on my site at cloud Ranger comics. And, uh, we published it through the submit program at Comicsology very recently, and we're busy working on a sequel. I was about to mention that too. Matter of fact, uh, my girlfriend and I were just talking about it prior to the show because we, both <laughs> I, we both remember seeing the uh the tweet you had put out when it first got released and we're looking at the list i'm like okay jeff Ryder, I'm like oh that's the guy from the Anthracon. i was hanging out with us uh, later on in the night it's like he's really cool and it's like sean dillon's like oh shoot he was on the show and then it's like erica schultz name I'm like okay you've already got like an all-star lineup here like i had to yeah <laughs> erica did the lettering for us on this one and she and christopher white both did some editing for us for story editing stuff on two different shorts that i'm putting together that all came through a kickstarter campaign that somebody turned me on to while we were at one of these parties just about every little thing that i've done out of comics in the last year or so has come out of these events for sure so it's been pretty exciting i love hearing those stories and especially when they're people that you meet and you respect and admire and you you find out that they're working together obviously that's kind of the goal to get people together to either create comics or help promote what have you but it's also really just really good to hear that something does come out of this and also just speaks volumes of why these things need to happen. So I'm really glad to hear that, you know, things really cemented and worked out well for you that night. Yeah. It was fun. (laughs) 
which granted, I don't know how far you had to travel because I mean, granted, we didn't get back until late. So, <laughs> well, and I was in New York for Comic Con both times, but I live in San Francisco, so I was I had traveled quite a ways. Though that night, all I had to do was wander back to the hotel, so that worked out. Okay. <laughs> Oh, boy. So I guess before we even start on your current books, we should probably take a little bit of step back into your beginnings, as it were. So how does your journey begin in terms of writing for comics and just writing in general? Well, <laughs> that, that's that's a long story um, for sure. I've uh, I've been a storyteller most of my life. I majored in creative writing in college two decades ago, almost. And it was one of those things where I, as a writer and an artist, wasn't really sure where I was going and what I was doing. I was very passionate about the craft and I was learning a lot when I was young. But right. um, as, as anybody who's ever tried to do it knows, there's absolutely no money in it, especially when you're a youngster. Um, <laughs> so I had, uh, you know, one of these part-time jobs while I was trying to find writing work for a while and writing these great big important pieces of American literature, at least that's what I thought they were, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and tend and bar for a long, long time. And then those jobs turned into, you know, bigger, more important jobs. And, and before you know it, you've got a career going on and the, the writing that you were supposed to have pursued kind of falls by the wayside. And that happened to me off and on for a bunch of years. About six or seven years ago, I was living in Austin, Texas, which is where I'm from. And I met a nice lady who lived in California at a conference. And she and I got to talking. And then we started dating long distance. And eventually, I ended up moving to California. <laughs> and when my wife, Carla, and I got together, this was before she was my wife, obviously, um, she sort of encouraged me. She said, you know, I know that you're a great writer and you want to go back to doing that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, you should, you should come out here and, and try to pursue those, those goals and see what you can come up with. And so I kind of farted around for a while and I wrote <laughs> a little here and a little there and I did some blogging for some things and I, I started, you know, trying to find ways to write about the stuff that I was really passionate about and really interested in. I wrote about soccer for a little while, which is one of my uh, crazy hobbies. And, um, but she said to me at one point, like, why don't, why have you never tried to write comics? You're, one of the biggest comic storks I know. You have these giant piles of old comics. And, and <laughs> I love how she says that. Like, you're one of the biggest comic dorks I know. It's like, wait, thank you. Is that a compliment? <laughs> it, it, coming from my wife, that is a compliment. If you if you knew her, you'd know that that's that was said with genuine affection for sure. And um, but it, but it, it did. It got me thinking. Why why have I never tried this? I've been reading comics since I was you know nine or ten years old. At the same time that I've been reading sort of adventure fiction and all these other things. And it wasn't so much the nature of storytelling, which I knew how to do and had been trained how to do, as much as it was, you know, format and and learning some stuff about an industry that I didn't know anything about. So I got, you know, a lot of the the books that you're supposed to read, you know, creating comics the Marvel way, creating comics the DC way, and uh, the, the little Alan Moore book about writing comics, which is pretty fantastic. And I just sort of started looking into the core of it and the subject only to find that there is no real theory or core or subject matter about how to write comics at all. There's <laughs> there's no one sincere school of thought, and there's certainly no such thing as format or, or anything like that. Right. Especially not now. I mean, I think I probably read a lot of those books you did, because early on, I thought to myself, you know, I want to draw comics. And you're like, okay, you know, draw comics like this and draw comics like that. But yet I realized those comics or those books, rather, that I was reading, no one really does that anymore. Or I should yeah. say that it's not it's a lot different now. Definitely a lot different now, for sure. And I think there are a lot of factors to it. There's a lot of technology now that didn't exist before. There's so much self-publishing going on now that wasn't available to people before uh, the Internet you know, right, and, exactly. and digital comics have opened up amazing new things. Like I said, the the piece we were just talking about, the Gravity Matters piece, 
was originally scripted to go in sort of a panel by panel thing horizontal on a tablet reader and not at all in a traditional comic book format. But uh, a story is a story. And if you think visually the way most comics people do, you work that out. I sort of also found as I got into it that there were a lot of people who were currently working in the industry, a lot of writers out there who were putting their scripts on their personal sites. So I started following some of the writers that I really admire, like Cullen Bunn and Jim Zub and different people. And you go to their sites and find that they have whole scripts of things that they've already published. Um, so I remember reading, for example, uh, Cullen Bunn's The Sixth Gun in script format before I'd ever read the comic. I oh, you lucky son script. of a gun. <laughs> yeah, because the, the, the script for the first issue is on his site. It's still there as far as I know. And I got it and I sat down and read the whole thing. And then I went to the comic book store and, and bought the comic because I'd always been interested in it and just hadn't gotten around to picking it up. And then I sat down and read the book after having already read the script, kind of what was coming. And I was like, that's really interesting. I see now how he moved a little bit of this. And so I started trying to find as many of those as I could. And um, that was kind of a fun way to, to learn a little bit about the craft. But um, as you get into it, you kind of find, especially when you start meeting artists and different things, that um, you end up really writing for an audience of only one person. I'm, I'm really only trying to tell the story to the artist who's going to convert it into images. Right. And if, if I'm not getting it across to him or her then they're not going to be able to put it on the page. So uh, there there are certainly some early things that I did where uh, I knew the story in my head and I had these concepts of what I thought was supposed to come out. And then you, you hand it off to the, the artist and they put things on the page that you weren't expecting. And, of course, they, they only can go on what you hand them. So it, it, it's an interesting process. And it's an interesting learning curve. It, it creates some fun stuff, accidental and intentional, that, that you never really expect. <laughs> I almost feel like that was sort of the way with Gravity Matters. I wasn't necessarily too familiar with your writing style before that. There was such a great gelling of styles, and I really appreciate the fact that, A, you told this really fun story, a fairly unique story, but also one thing you did mention that you said there was a sequel, but yet it was a really great standalone story yeah. that has a beginning has a middle and has an end naturally and you built a great universe in a way that you can say well hey if you were to expand on this universe that'd be well and good because i think you set up a lot of really cool things early on but at the same time even if you've just picked this up it's not like those you know books where it's like you read this and then you have to read tons of other issues of mm -hmm. backstory and continuity like it's just this great story it has a beginning it has an end and it's Pretty well, and I think that's really what scares a lot of people off is they assume that every comic has thousands of issues and this like deep universe that you almost get lost in. But here, it's a great story, and it's also just very brisk. Yeah, well, like I said, it was I intended to write it as a short piece, and when I first created it, you know, I never really thought much about where these characters would go past the beginning. It's a sort of a science fiction disaster story for anybody who hasn't read it. It's a little bit of a kind of a sci-fi towering inferno or Poseidon adventure. Uh, about a young woman who gets trapped in a in a factory in the future that's that's kind of uh, falling apart. So it's it's an interesting thing. It's a fun character study because it's one character against a larger situation. There's not necessarily a bad guy so much as it's uh, just sort of an, an event she's experiencing and trying to get through. But there were a couple of fun supporting characters in there that we that we enjoyed that we thought if we wrote another story could we tell a, a similar story but not the exact same one from a different direction. So the initial story is about a young woman who has a sister. And in the, the sequel story that Sean and I are coming up with, the point of view sort of flips and it's more about the sister and the, the main character, Amy, from the first story is kind of a peripheral character in the second story. Awesome. That's a yeah. really cool idea. They tell you as a writer, uh, write the things you know. Obviously, I don't know about sci-fi future factories 
but uh, I know I know about teenage girls because I have two daughters. So uh, um, uh, it, they very, very heavily influenced the story to the point that I had to describe to them. These characters may seem like they're you, but they're not. They're original so it's like, people. don't sue me years later. Yeah, and don't get all offended and upset when they do things that you think, well, he wrote this comic about me. And then at the end, she does this horrible thing. And now I hate her and he hates me. And it does, you know, they're kids. So they, they, they want to see themselves in things. And they do definitely have uh, a lot of influence on these two stories. They're very, these stories in particular are very much written for my kids and hopefully for other people who enjoy them too. They're, they're kind of uh, geared to that, that younger mindset. And then, the characters speak in the same way that my kids speak a lot of times and, and have some of the same language and, and that kind of thing. So. That's pretty awesome because I, I can't imagine, of course, you being in a house and having your daughters kind of go back and forth. And it's like, how could you not put that into a story? Yeah, my wife and I say if, if we could make uh, comics just about the things that our daughters say to each other, we'd have the whole country laughing their brains out every second of every day because we just roll on the floor with some of the things that – that go back and forth between those two. They're very, very different people, and, and they're a lot of fun to hang out with, for sure. <laughs> right, and much like the characters. And I love the fact that they have their own language, which is funny because once you uh, meet the lead, there's certain terms that she uses, and then it's like, oh, this is great, but then once you introduce the sister, and while they're two completely different people in terms of personalities in certain ways, there are certain things that are said the way they said it. It's like, okay, these two are clearly related. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was yeah, a really they- nice touch. I think it's pretty common for siblings to do that. I have older sisters, and we used to have sort of a, the continual running in jokes even today, and my girls definitely do that. Not to the point that you hear jokes about twins who have whole languages developed by themselves, but just about all kids who hang out together end up with the same phrases and the same uh, terms that they pick up from their friends and share back and forth and stuff. So <laughs> It is refreshing to know that even as you get older, that doesn't change much because after all these years of dealing with my older sister, and it's like, wow. And I've been in a room with other people who don't know us that well. And every so often you look at their faces, I'm like, they're completely lost, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, and then, and hopefully that's one of the fun things about the book is that it makes that story accessible to everybody because, you know, lots of people have siblings or know people who do. And that core foundation of real characters in the middle of the story, regardless of whether it's sci-fi or, you know, historical fiction or any other thing you might want to look at. Um, is fun because the characters are real people that you can really relate to. Another one you've been working on is Ben Bit. Yeah, Ben Bit was actually the very first comic story I ever wrote or ever created as a comic. For a while, I made the mistake that uh, the various uh, comics folks would tell you is everybody's first mistake, which is trying to write these long magnum opuses and big series and huge graphic novels and things like that. And uh, you get encouraged by a lot of the writers out there, you know, to Start small and think small. Right. So when I met Stan Chow at New York Comic Con in 2014, I started having conversations with a lot of different artists about doing uh, just short comics, eight-page comics, ten-page comics, you know, something small, something for the web. Again, the idea of create an entire world inside a, a very small thing. As a writing exercise, it's fun because attempting to achieve a whole encapsulated uh, universe, if you will, or world in a very limited amount of real estate, you know, only only eight pages, which is what Stan and I decided to do with Bimbit. It was pretty fun, and it's a writing challenge for sure, but it, it makes you better at it, definitely, and it definitely teaches you to respect the real estate of the comics page. You know, it's pretty interesting that you should say that because I remember uh, in college – at his creative writing course, and one of the exercises that the professor had us do was, okay, I want you to write one scene, keep it 
close to dialogue, not too much action, but basically see how much you could do with as little dialogue as possible. Like as far as like in exchange, so you have two characters who are talking and use as little dialogue as possible. And I'm like, oh, that should be easy. But then you realize, wow, that's actually much tougher than I thought because as someone who also writes, and I don't know if you have this problem where you sometimes catch yourself where you almost have your character say too much. Mm-hmm. That's a pitfall for a lot of writers, and it, it is a pitfall for me for sure t- from time to time, especially in comics, because you certainly don't want your words, be they captions or the words of the, the you know, the voices of the characters themselves crowding out the art. The, the joy of comics is that it's, it's a story that's, that's really visual. And when you grab a great artist like Stan Chow, who did Ben Bitt or, or Sean Dillon or whomever, you don't want to, you know, crowd out the, the visuals that they've created. You really want to let the art breathe and right. try to tell the story in as few words as possible sometimes. I regularly will write a comic, pass it off to the artist, get it back and realize, oh, I have to shorten everybody's lines because there's way too much cool art here. And I, I, I want these bubbles to all be small and I want people to be looking at these, these awesome images. And, uh, typically before it ever goes on to a lettering or anything like that, I, I, I'll do a second pass on the dialogue and stuff because yeah, you want to, you want your dialogue to be simple. You want it to be straightforward. If the images are telling the story, then have everybody shut up and get out of the way and, and just let the art do the work. And um, it's a learning curve for sure. It's it's a trick. Yeah, because then it's like you get those great lines where your character says something that's really fantastic. Like, I can't cut any of this out. This is all too important. Yeah. And then just basically getting out of your own way to be like, all right, fine. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I've, I've, I've run up against that in some storytelling that I've done before where you have to remember that your readers are pretty smart. The audience is generally fairly intelligent. You can hint at things or or set things up and let them sort of fill in the blanks to a certain degree. And depending on the kind of story that you're telling, you actually want to do that more often than not. If it's a suspense story or a little bit of a mystery or something like that, you definitely don't want to give up give away too much up front. You just want to fill in a little bit of the blanks and and kind of let everybody else uh, follow along. And a lot of general knowledge and common sense are are the kinds of things that. You know, people will will fill in their own stories for sure. I don't know. Maybe it's that inevitable dash of pretension that creative types have where mm-hmm. there's that certain part of your brain where it's like, you know what, man, you don't get it. You don't get my art. You know, this is just... <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that that's something that you definitely want to avoid. I try to avoid that. <laughs> Oh, I mean, thankfully, I don't have too many of those exchanges out loud because then you, that, you come off really terrible. But. Yeah, you, you can fall into that pitfall pretty easy if you're not careful. <laughs> Sorry, I just imagined you, you know, it's just like, come on, man. You know what? Really, what's more important, the, the werewolf or, you know, the, the, the human talking? Come on, man. Like, this is <laughs> – I don't do what everybody else does, you know? And when Stan and I created Bin Bit, which is a werewolf western, basically, we had a good time going back and forth on, uh, you know, will only the people talk? Will the werewolves talk or will they only growl at each other? Will there be human dialogue and werewolf dialogue or just human dialogue? And it was kind of fun to sort of have those creative ideas and, and kind of define the world based on something really simple, which when we ended up making the story, what we came down to is there's a, a whole separate lettering font for the werewolves when the werewolves become wolves and speak to each other. So you can tell this is a wolf speaking, even though it's the same character versus this is a human speaking in it. It's subtle within the panels, but it changes the dynamic of the conversations pretty quickly. And it was something I, I nearly killed myself trying to letter because I, I lettered that first comic myself without any idea what I was doing. And it was, <laughs> it was a challenge that I will not take on again in the future. <laughs> now, was that just a matter of, I guess was this one of those personal challenges where you're like, you know what? I don't know if I could do this, but you know, what? I'm going to try anyway. But I mean, it came off pretty well though. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> it's uh 
Yeah, it was part of the learning curve. It's, uh, you know, when you're, when you're new and getting into comics, you're, you know, making these stories and putting them on the internet and publishing them when you can and where you can kind of on your own budget. And so some of it was, I, I thought, well, you know, this can't be that hard. I can certainly figure it out. And there are great tutorials online and different places you can look that'll teach you the, the basics of it. But you realize once you get into it, how difficult it is. And I think it took me almost a month to letter a little tiny eight page comic. Oh, wow. Uh, the first letter I hired did twice that much in about three days. And I thought, good Lord, I'm leaving this to the professionals from now on and I'm staying out of my own way. It, it was pretty rough. Okay. It makes me very much appreciate things that the letterers do. And, uh, when I hired, uh, Erica to work on Gravity Matters and I've worked with a, a woman named Rachel Deering on, on some other projects. And, uh, it very much makes you respect what they do because they're very good at it and they can just crank it out in no time at all. And it's, it's impressive. Well, you said exactly what I said, but much more eloquently. <laughs> but yeah, it's like I've had a couple of letters on and again, I think that's something that I think people take for granted. You see it on the page. It's like, all right, someone clearly wrote this in, but you think about layout and the types of letters and it's like, wow, this is, as every bit important of the process as, you know, the, the script and the art as well. It absolutely is. And and not only that, knowing some of the theory behind it and, and having worked with a few letterers here and there, uh, it it affects the way that you write. It, it certainly affects the way that I write dialogue. Like I said before, uh, there was a an instance on a book that I've got coming out fairly soon in print, actually, that was a, a story I wrote called Major Holmes and Captain Watson. And I worked with a woman named Rachel Deering. And in a couple of places in that first script, she sent me back and she said, the art shows this. You don't have to say it. I'm taking this line out of here. And she wasn't asking me. She was, <laughs> she was telling me. And she was right. And the panel looks great and the, the book looks great. But it but it made me think going forward every time, okay, he's saying this or she's saying this or they're saying this to each other. Do they need to be or is the art telling me the story already? And I can I can sort of leave this out and let the let the panel breathe a little bit. And um, so, yeah, understanding and working with a good letterer who really knows what they're doing will make you a much better comic writer for sure because you always have to be thinking about, okay, once they get their hands on this, are they going to be able to tweak this? Are they going to be able to understand this? Are they going to know where the emphasis is in the line? And, and will they even think this line is necessary? And, and so it's, it's, it, it's one of the reasons comics are so much fun because it's not just me. They're collaborative art, and you really get the chance to, to let a lot of people uh, get their hands in it. So let's go into a little bit of uh, Major Holmes and Captain Watson, by the way, because I know you mentioned it a few times, and uh, there's been a very big push in that on social networking, which is really cool. So uh, let's get into a little bit of the background as far as that goes. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I, I literally have the proof copy in my hands today. It came in the mail. so um, I'm, Awesome. Very cool. So it was really neat. But yeah, Major Holmes and Captain Watson's a story I've been wanting to tell since I was a little, little kid, long before I was ever into comics. I grew up reading, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes. My grandmother gave me a copy of, of the complete Sherlock Holmes, uh, when I was nine, uh, and a box of dusty old books as a Christmas present. And at the time I thought, wow, these aren't Star Wars action figures. <laughs> this is the worst Christmas present ever. And in, like, thanks, girl. in retrospect, it was easily probably one of the best Christmas presents I've ever gotten. I still have a lot of these old books, which included a lot of other great adventure stuff. There's a collected set of the works of Alexandre Dumas, all the Three Musketeers stuff. Uh, Robinson Crusoe was in that box, uh, a couple other things like that. But um, oh wow, yeah, like like the heavies. And my grandmother was a librarian and, and knew the good stuff. So uh, uh, yeah, she passed that stuff on to me, and and with it, sort of a love of, of storytelling and adventure stories. And I always kind of wanted to to take a shot at at a Sherlock Holmes style thing. And a couple of years ago, when uh, when I was first sort of getting into comics, Sherlock Holmes passed into the public domain, and I said, this is this is my chance. I'm going to take my shot. But what I created instead is a story that has that name on it that doesn't have any 
uh, you know, doesn't have Sherlock Holmes in it. He's he's not a part of our story. Uh, Major Holmes and Captain Watson is kind of Sherlock Holmes in the next generation, for lack of a better term. It's about Sherlock's nephew, Sheffield Holmes, who is both a detective and a spy. And he works for the British government um, right at the start of the First World War in, in 1914. Okay, you got me. So yeah. Sheffield is uh, a little bit Sherlock Holmes and a little bit James Bond. He kind of bridges the gap between some of the great British heroes, if you want to think about it that way. He's got a, a female partner named uh, Captain Imogen Watson, who is not at all a Watson and has her own secret past. Um, they both work for Mycroft Holmes um, as part of a sort of a special government uh, group. And right. they uncover a mystery in London that has ties to both the home family backstory and the start of the First World War and, and has larger implications, both historically speaking and within the, the Conan Doyle canon as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. Like we just, just like I said, got the print version back today. Uh, it originally appeared at cloudangercomics.com as a digital series. There were two chapters online, a really great black and white comic by an artist named Carlos Caballero. And uh, we went in and added color to it, turned it into full color, and, and put up a cover. And we're combining the chapters that you can read online into a, a print book. That's uh, that again is going to be available in print and on Comixology very soon. Excellent, Caleb. Look out for that. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it, and and it's kind of neat to have a. Uh, I, I've done a lot of digital comics, you say, but to have the first real paper thing you ever made sitting in your hands is kind of a neat experience. I know if I saw that, like I'd probably get like hyper emotional. Well. I, I wouldn't say there weren't tears when it came out of the box. Uh, we'll, we're going to pretend that I was I was cool and calm about it for sure. <laughs> oh, see, I just had to sold a picture of you just running around the house holding it up and like, look what I got. It's here. Well, the sad part was there's nobody home but me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I got the mail this morning and no one else has come home yet but me. It's just me sitting here with it. Excited to show it to people. <laughs> Sitting at the door, just waiting for like for like the lock to slide. It's like, guess what's here? Look, like, look, look, look. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also, of course, the artist being his own worth critic, I'm flipping through it, going, "Oh, this could have been a little bit like this." And then, you know, your your first thing is always imperfect for sure. A lot of comics writers would tell you, like, when you get started out and when you're new, don't expect you know your comics to change the world. Dude, the first few books you make are going to be bad. And you're only going to get better by making them, but you have to make comics to get good at it. So hopefully this is the first step on to uh, to big things. I, I don't think it's bad, certainly, but um, I, I don't think I'm ever going to be happy with it or think that it's perfect either. So, yeah, I was going to say, that's just a perfectionist thing. That's another part of the process. I don't know if people know about Maybe they do, but uh, it gets bad. Yeah, it, it's it's tough to, to let it go sometimes. I can't tell you how many times I've done like a podcast and afterwards I'm like, did that come out good? Was that fine? And then it's like after you're editing and you start noticing little ticks like, oh, why did I say that then? Mm -hmm. It's like, can I just re-record that? I'm like, nope, nope, going to send it out in the world. Yeah. And then, of course, once you get the feedback in, you're like, wait, did you hear the same thing I did or are, are you... <laughs> Yeah, we're always our own worst critics, for sure. Uh, but uh, we've been talking so much about all of these great comics, but before we go any further, anything else you may want to tease at the moment, uh, feel free to do so. Well, um, we talked a lot of bit at the beginning about the Creator After Connection Network, uh, which is a sort of a social group that spawned out of two cons in New York last summer. Like I say, it's it's where I met a lot of the folks that I collaborate with. Jay Jacob Barker, Stan Chow, and Steve Petrovelli launched it as an after party to a, a panel that occurs at the New York conventions called Creator Connection, which is kind of a, I think of it as speed dating for comics creators, where you get five minutes to sit across from somebody else and show them your portfolio or your script and, and kind of meet folks, whatever. Uh, Jacob and, and Steve and 
Stan decided that's perfectly good and it, it's really helpful. Let's take that same group of people off to a bar later in the evening and turn those five minute conversations into 30 minute conversations. You know, let's, let's get together and be a little social and have a beer and, and make friends and network that much more. And having attended two of them, I sat down with Jay and said, this needs to happen at every convention in the country. Like this is an invaluable asset for people who are trying to get into comics like we are. You, right. At every convention you go to these days, and I've been to a bunch in the last couple of years, uh, there's at least one, if not a handful, of how to break into comics panels. And you can go listen to luminaries and big hotshot comics creators tell you, you know, the ways that they got into comics. But one of their favorite stories, and I've heard about six different versions of this, is that there is no one way to get into comics, that everybody has sort of a unique experience, and that Kelly Sue DeConnick likes to tell a funny story about um, the line going around is that breaking into comics is like breaking out of prison. Once somebody figures out how to do it, they make sure no one can ever do it that way ever again. Um, <laughs> and she and Kieran Gillen and Matt Fraction and some other folks who all kind of came up together spent a lot of time talking about how they all met on the Warren Ellis message boards back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, uh, and that, you know, and then they slowly but surely all broke into comics together. And that's a great story, but that's not available to us anymore. Those message boards. Yeah, are gone. I was going to say, it's weird. Like, I can't tell you how infrequently I hear the term message boards these days. Yeah, that's, that's not a thing that's around anymore. You know, we have Twitter and we have Facebook and we have these other things. And Jacob and Steve and Stan decided they were going to put together this group. And for right now, it's been a springboard for a lot of folks that I know. Uh, Johnny C, uh, who uh, is in Boston, who's made some comics, has met a bunch of folks at that thing. And, and, I've met a handful of people that I've got some things in the works with at these events. But when I told Jacob, like, this needs to be everywhere, um, we started talking to Buddy Scalera, who runs the Creator Connection uh, panels at the cons, and finding out where else he was going to be. He's going to be at the convention in Chicago here in two weeks, uh, C2E2, uh, as they call it, the Chicago Comics and Entertainment Expo. And Buddy's having the Creator Connection panel there twice. So I'm going to be going to that panel or both to the panel and to the convention in Chicago. And I'm hosting an event, um, uh, another creator connection party, um, the creator after connection network after both of those panels. So on Friday, March 18th and Saturday, March 19th at C2E2, if you're a comics person and are going to the connection network, um, there'll be a, the, the creator connection panels. And then in the evening on Friday and Saturday night uh, at a place called Brando's Speakeasy, there we're having the after party, two nights back to back. Very cool. It's uh, sponsored by Buddy Scalera and Comic Book School, which is at Comic Book School on Twitter. Um, it's also sponsored by Crack and Print at Crack and Print on Twitter. And you can find information about the after parties at uh, the the Twitter handle for the after. Con network is at C after con N or if you just search C A C N on Twitter, you can find us. And it's actually pretty astounding that this isn't more of a thing. Well, that's, that was kind of our thought when we did it. This is amazing. This needs to be more of a thing. This needs to be everywhere. And, uh, you know, unfortunately Stan and Jay and Steve, the original creators of it, weren't going to be able to be in Chicago, but I was, and I told them, you know, we'll move it. You guys, We'll definitely give the shout outs to you because you guys thought it up and and it's sort of in your honor to a certain extent. But um, this is practically a public service for, for folks trying to get into comics. Right, absolutely. We need to make sure it's available to them. And, and how hard can it be? We, we find a spot with a nice, quiet back corner bar where we're all going to get together after the con and we're going to take, you know, those fun five minute conversations and our passion for making comics and turn them into longer conversations, and with any luck, turn them into comics and turn them into careers. Absolutely, and nothing else, just at least in the connection. So even if, let's say, for instance, 
you know, you and another individual talk together. Maybe the plan doesn't necessarily work out, but you can always put, you know, someone else who's like, hey, I may be looking for like a colorist or something. It's like, well, I met this person at this con and, you know, it works that way. Yeah, it's it's that's one of the best things about going to a handful of different uh, conventions around the country and and going to some of these panels where these creators sort of meet up together. In fact, the Major Holmes and Captain Watson book is very much that story. The artist that I met initially that I pitched the idea to two years ago, he and I got along really well. And he said, that's, you know, that's a really cool story. It's very interesting. It's similar to some things that I've done and a lot of the stuff that's already in my portfolio. So I'm going to pass on it. Let's do something different. At the same time, I know a guy that'd be perfect for this. And he introduced me to Carlos Caballero, who did the art for the book. And then when we came around to doing the print edition, we reached back out to the original artist, uh, a, a fellow named Michael Dorman, who lives here in San Francisco or in Sacramento. And uh, he said, hey, you know, this happened because you introduced the two of us. We think it would be awesome if you would do the cover art. And so he did. And then he helped us find a colorist to do the color version of the book as well, uh, a guy named Anthony Lee, who lives in the UK, who I've never met in real life. But none of that would have happened had it not been for these these panels and these connections and these, you know, these networking events that you that you get to go to. So. The whole book, in in a certain way, came out of those things. That's absolutely nuts, and I really hope that this idea takes off in whatever iteration. The word's got to get out there somehow, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I say, we may not have the word and Ellis message boards anymore, but we certainly have each other, and and ultimately, you know, creators meeting each other and recommending each other back and forth and working together and making as many things as they can is is how we're all going to take steps forward. And like I say, the joy of comics is it's a collaborative art form, and so we. We need each other to make them, and so the best thing we can do is is make an effort to find each other, for sure. Jeff, I'm so glad we got a chance to finally sit down and chat for a little bit. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're more than welcome to come back and shoot the breeze about anything you feel like going into. Sure. <laughs> I know, like, the last time we talked, though, we spent, what, nearly, like, a half hour outside of a bar debating the uh, the various uh, types of Robins? I think we were debating, yeah, I was going to say, the, the various values of, of Batman's partners over the years. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that alone is why I realized why I love doing this to begin with because these are conversations that I had for ages with certain people but it's cool to meet like-minded people now you know well into my 30s where okay these conversations are no longer weird to have like <laughs> you talk about these as easily as you do sports yeah oh yeah uh, well in in the modern world the geeks have inherited the earth for sure and it's it's nice to be able to to have these like-minded folks to to share stories with and it's really great to sit and talk to you <laughs> all right so do you have any social networking sites of your own if you like throwing out there before we close out well you can uh like I say all the comics that i make you can find at cloudwranglercomics.com in fact right now everything i've ever made is online for free feel free to read it download it the whole nine yards um you can also search for cloud wrangler comics at comiXology if you're a fan of their guide to view technology and, and the way that they present comics digitally we've got some stuff up there now and some more things coming um, you can find me in the various social medias. I'm at Clout Wrangler just about everywhere. Uh, Twitter, Facebook. I think I'm on Instagram in theory. Um, there's a at Cloud Wrangler Tumblr out there somewhere. The easiest way to find me is, is Twitter and Facebook, and it's at Cloud Wrangler. Excellent. Jeff, again, thank you so much for uh, chatting and for everybody else. Obviously, all my social networking sites, you'll hear in a nifty little commercial after the ending theme. But for now, that'll do it for this episode of Asian Has Issues, and we will see you next issue.
Hey guys, I'm Adrian. And I'm His Issues. Wait, what? Hey guys, I'm Adrian. And I'm... Wait, wait, that's not right. Hey guys, I'm Adrian. And I'm Eileen. Tune in to the Adrian Has Issues podcast. Each week we chat with some great people. Including me from time to time. Comic book creators, comedians. Musicians and actors. Tax collectors, Zamboni drivers. (sighs) Point is, basically anyone willing to sit down for a geeky discussion or two on all things pop culture. Visit AdrianHasIssues.com where you can download and stream every episode. Especially the ones featuring yours truly. Visit Adrian Has Issues on Facebook and Twitter. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Please leave a rating and review and tell me how amazing I am. Us. I mean us. Ah, oh, McKenna, you're way cooler than I am anyway. Aw, oh, thanks, babe. Oh, and Adrian Has Issues is also a proud member of the Tangent Bound Podcast Network. Awesome. Nice save, Brodor. <sighs> Visit AdrianHasIssues.com. <laughs>